Okay, well, I'm here with Amy or Ewing, and it's great to have Amy or Ewing on Little Breakfast. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thank you for having me, Clive. It's great to be on. Yeah, it's so good uh, you could join us. Well, we have a bit of um, a tradition here, a tradition, and it sounds a bit grandiose. This is only about the fifth episode of The Little Breakfast. <laughs> but um, we, we start off, before we get into the kind of, you know, the serious meat of the topic, thinking a bit about breakfast. So what, what does a sort of average breakfast look like for you, Amy, per day? Yeah, um, well, a very nice cup of coffee. So yeah. made in a cafetiere with a little bit of frothy milk would be definitely, um, definitely up there. And actually quite simple. I like a really, really good, ideally sort of rye or German type of sourdough bread toasted with runny honey so a slice of that and a nice cup of coffee would be yeah. would be you know the ideal breakfast for me I noticed how as a thinker you put the coffee in first it was like that was the essential <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know a nice or smooth I like a, a nice East Africa like Kenya or Rwandan coffee yeah yeah, yeah. None as instant rubbish. <laughs> no. I'm only going to have one or maybe two coffees a day, so you may as well, you know, actually make it count. Savour it, yeah. Exactly. Uh, if you could have a dream breakfast, like the ultimate breakfast, what would it be? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I think if there were no calories attached, <laughs> a, a really nice sort of American pancake kind of delicious puffly lovely pancake with with a bit of maple syrup and maybe yeah. a piece of english bacon i don't like american bacon you know the really yeah. crispy drippy stuff nice it's a bit english weird bacon. isn't it that bacon it's yeah. like sticks like toys yeah I don't bacon. like that no but it's toys it's weird isn't it yeah um and here's another one which i haven't asked anyone else on the little breakfast says a curve or is what would be your nightmare breakfast oh um anything sort of too greasy so I don't I can't I can't be doing with black pudding or um you know anything absolutely dripping with grease I, yeah. I would find it hard to stomach in the morning <laughs> well I, I was I have an answer that um before when I was thinking about I was in Russia in the middle of Russia oh, in the middle oh, of nowhere yeah. once in a field uh doing a sort of mission camp and they said time for breakfast I went up and it was a bit of bread with a massive tomato and this odd looking fish on top and I just thought what on earth is that and you've just got to sort of stomach it you know so that that's certainly that's up there for me Uh, yeah that sounds like it yeah we've had I've had a few funny breakfast experiences at missions conferences actually one we've been to uh, together that ELF at times in Hungary offerings there haven't there <laughs> maybe yeah. not for breakfast but oh not bro I think there was I think there was one really weird one it was like pea soup with an egg stuck in the middle of it or yeah. something it was really yeah. generally like weird things with eggs but anyway aside of that we might have lost a lot of people the thinking that they've tuned in to come dine with me or something but um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna think a little bit about um what's going on in society and what have you just before we do that just want to explain to folks a little bit about what you're involved in in terms of ministry 
Yeah, sure. So um, I work with an apologetics ministry called Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and um, we're a kind of global team. Um, and we, our, our strapline is um, helping the thinker believe and the believer think. So there's sort of two strands to, to what we're trying to do. We're trying to present um, the gospel to a sceptical world and also to equip the church with apologetics, which just means, you know, good, solid, substantial um, reasons for, for why what we believe is true and can be mm. trusted. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I've been doing that for 22 years and based wow. in Oxford, um, but, but travelling around quite a bit. Sorry, that's my dog barking. Okay. This, is the, this is the joy it's of lockdown. It's all very real in lockdown, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it certainly is, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, someone just came to the door. That's okay. You've got a delivery. For a second, that's okay. <laughs> We'll just play some interlude music right now. So. Yeah, we need to. I don't know whether I need to go and just get her in. Can I do that? Okay, Can we sure. Pause yeah, I'll pause it. Yeah, yeah. Is that all right? Okay, well, we're back after the dog episode, uh, Life in Lockdown. <laughs> and um, Amy's telling us a little bit about what she does. So, so uh, continue. Yeah. Thank you, Clive. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, yeah, so uh, we have a base in Oxford and, and a centre there called the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. And people come from around the world to, to, to really train and learn how to do evangelism and apologetics. And we have people like Professor John Lennox and Alistair McGrath and others involved in that. I'm the director of that centre. Um, and we have a sort of team of evangelists, I guess, who who work from work out of that centre and kind of travel to and from there. So we're really seeking to, I guess, listen to um, you know the big things that are happening in culture, the big ideas that are out there, as well as the um, the smaller, you know, but more common questions that that just keep people from from trusting God or even considering Christ for themselves. So. Yeah, it's a great team to be part of, and I've yeah been involved with it for, as I said, twenty two years, which yeah. seems absolutely unbelievable. Amazing. Where's the time going? I know. Incredible. Okay, so just thinking a bit about, um, I mean, this kind of relates to obviously the work that you're involved in. And that's partly why it's great to have you on the little breakfast. Um, when we think about the UK or indeed the the Western world, how would you describe the thinking of our age pre-COVID-19 where have we been over the last 10 years what's the sort of big picture ideas do you think that are, that are out there yeah sure so I think probably beginning about 10 years ago there was a shift away from what had been called postmodernism, which was a sort of embracing of uncertainty and embracing of disillusionment uh, a kind of general acceptance that there's there's no one truth or one big narrative or story that unites everyone and a kind of collapse of meaning I guess I think about 10 years ago that began to pivot towards um, a greater sense of basically hostility to anyone who disagrees with me um, a replacing of older meta-narratives, whether that was an enlightenment way of looking at the world or even, you know, a sort of traditional Christian faith, and replacing that with, with what some people call kind of identity politics, I guess, 
or um, you know, we might might back then have thought of as being very politically correct. But mm. um, some of these ideas that um, the way I see the world and the views that I have utterly define who I am. So if there's any um, disagreement with with that idea, then that is a rejection of me. You are trying to cancel me in some way, or even you know, essentially mm. kill me, get rid of me, and so. Um, that has led to heightened levels of, I think, anxiety and heightened levels of sort of um, being on on alert, on high alert. Is is what I'm saying or what I'm articulating is it acceptable to people around me? Am I causing offence to other people? So there's this sense of, you know, you might damage or harm someone by expressing a view that um, that they deem to be cancelling of them in some way and so there's a real fear um and and an unexpected impact of that and this is probably also an impact of the internet is is people kind of retreating into their own bubbles and echo chambers of groups who just agree with them and reinforce everything they already think and not really being aware of or having personal relationship with people who think differently so a classic example is, I guess, um, two big examples were the election of Trump, which no one expected to happen because everyone that everyone knew hated him. So how could, it, how could it possibly be that there was anyone who voted for him? And similarly with Brexit, most, most people did not expect that to happen. And a lot of the people who were shocked by it really genuinely did not know a single person who, who supported the Brexit idea. And so... Um, this kind of entrenchment into subcultures which had very little crossover with one another, heightened suspicion, and also then kind of characterising the other as dangerous or unsafe or as, you know, in in some way a threat. I think that's had a a massive, massive impact on... On, on the culture up until this point. Mm. Um, obviously, the COVID-19 thing is, is a real turning point potentially for that. So you've got things yeah. like the transgender movement where, you know, the whole category of whether a person is male or female, you know, that, that category of being female is, is, is sort of under threat. Mm. Um, and then others feeling, no, if, if you say that I'm not a woman, when I say I am a woman, then you are cancelling me. You know, that's a threat to me. So you know, that, that's an example of how it played out. But there are multiple sort of, um, I guess, touch points in the culture where there were just things that became unsayable. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I hadn't really thought about, you said one thing I hadn't really thought about before in terms of people being really heightened about what they say because of this sort of identity politics. That really makes a lot of sense when you look at the media, when we think about what people say or don't say, or how we might present an Instagram filtered version of ourselves. Yeah, that that really relates, doesn't it? Yeah, gangs of trolls on Twitter or on social media, that if someone says one thing that is now deemed to be unsafe or you know politically incorrect or if that is dug up from 25 years ago that they said it 
um, mm. you know, then they're sort of sat upon by a, a gang of haters or, online. And it's a really, really traumatic thing, obviously, for someone to go through that, but also to actually watch another person go through that. So, I, yeah, I do think people are on high alert. Mm. And as you say, that then leads to this this sense of presenting yourself in the world. And that keys into a whole nother aspect of of life in the 21st century in the west which is an obsession with appearance um that mm. there's an overlap with materialism there isn't there of you know presenting the best um way of of looking you know how, how curating your appearance and curating that online and having to own and have all all the right things to signal you know your worth and your value yeah. Um, I think that obviously that was there in the 1980s in a different brasher sort of way, but I think it's more subtle and more pervasive now. Yeah. I think what I also observe is that there seems to be sort of paradoxes that exist so that one person says something, but then it's not sort of logically followed through or consistent in how they live their lives. So I'll give you one example of that, because I think we've got a bit of a potpourri within culture. We've got people that are acting as modernists, people that are acting as postmodernists, and people that are acting, as you say, I think it's sort of a mixture um, depending yeah. on what age people are, isn't it? Um, yeah. One such good example of that is Ricky Gervais. And uh, he's got a new series out uh, on Netflix, The Afterlife, the second series that's come out. And um, one of the quotes or two quotes on that, I'd be interested to hear what you think of whether you think this is consistent or inconsistent or reflective. He says, humanity is a plague. We're a disgusting, narcissistic, selfish parasite, and the world would be a better place without us. <laughs> and, but he then also says in the series, because he's written the series, and obviously it's a caricature of him, Marzi, uh, he also then says, we're not just here for us, we're here for others. <laughs> yeah. Slightly inconsistent there. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that was quite yeah. a good synopsis yeah, of some of what we're thinking, isn't it, in terms of consistency? Yeah, definitely. But also, I guess, so to me, there's an apologetic opportunity in that. So in the first statement, he's he's basically reflecting, you know, classical materialism. And we are just the sum of the atoms that make up our material bodies. All we are is blobs mm. of stuff. And if you look at the impact on you know of us on the world, climate change, etc., would be would be better um, for the environment if these particular blobs of stuff no longer wreaked the havoc we do. Um, but yet, yeah, the second statement speaks of that genuinely human intuition that life should mean more and materialism can't explain that but oh. but christianity can explain that intuition that all of us share that longing for meaning and purpose that sense that human life is precious including the human life of people that i have no blood connection to i don't have any biological self interest in my own survival of whether they survive or not you know, mm. there's, there's no materials or benefit to me of the well-being of that other person. And yet I care. Yet mm. I am outraged when they die or are killed or, you know, are the victim of a famine or a war. And, and that outrage, as well as that sense of 
there, there ought to be more to life, all points to an image of God view of reality, the idea that human beings of life is sacred because we're created in the image of God. Yeah, and I think, I, th- I think you're right in terms of the material aspect because there is, there's an inconsistency a lot of the times with that thinking with the transcendent, isn't it? Because people might not believe in a transcendent God, yet I think in terms of creativity, a lot of people still want to make music, still want to paint pictures, still want yeah. to make TV programs. That's the irony, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly that aren't necessarily utilitarian or whatever yeah yeah Yeah, exactly so um yeah so i mean this is an example i guess of i think the mixture of what's out there in terms of what people are thinking that's really helpful what you've said about identity politics um and i think sometimes in the church we're still thinking about modernism and postmodernism and not thinking about what's currently out there at the minute so regarding um regarding the church uh i've been reading a book by kevin van hooser called hearing and doing kevin van hooser as you probably know is a theologian and um talks a lot about performative act of the word and drama of scripture and um he says that what can the church say that the world cannot say and i was really struck by that um particularly in this crisis that we're in because we can be doing a lot of things which we should be doing caring for the poor helping people out looking out for our neighbors but what do you think is unique to the church in terms of what we can communicate in in the age that we live what can the church say that the world cannot say Mm. um i I mean i think there's a lot i guess i would just maybe pick pick out two um, one would be giving a, a, a reason, a grounding for that desire to care for the other, the vulnerable, the poor, um, the old, those that are in our communities who, you know, maybe don't necessarily contribute economically or whatever. Um, that that the reason to do that, the reason to care, is is actually rooted in their value which is rooted in who god is so it's not really just a matter of of preference or um you know i happen to feel like this on a particular day but it is right at an essential level an absolute level that that love and care take place and so i think as the church we have you know a grounding for that um desire to care and love others that other worldviews just just don't have that doesn't mean that people who are in other worldviews don't love and care it just means that that sort of basis for that isn't necessarily there I think the second thing I would say we we really have to offer at this this time is um is hope beyond the grave so Mm. you know we don't in, a, in Western culture, we don't like to talk or think about dying and death, the process of death, what, what death actually, the experience of dying, what, what that's really like and, you know, doing that alone. And we certainly don't like to think about what happens after we die. But in a context where thousands and thousands of people are dying you know in in the period of a few weeks we're confronted with the reality of death and 
as Christians, we do have something to offer um, to, to that situation, the hope of Christ who's gone through death and was raised from the dead, a certain hope, the promise of Jesus that, you know, for anyone who will turn to him, that he will come and take us to be with him where he is, that death is not the end and that death doesn't have to be a gateway to, to punishment and suffering and hell, death can be a gateway to eternal life with Jesus that can be experienced now during the process of dying and after death. And that is just the most amazing news, if it's true, if it's true that death is not something to fear Mm. um, and that, that, that Jesus can be with us before, during and after. That is the most extraordinary promise of hope. You said something there which I think is, is, is profound and is really necessary for us to get hold of and dig deeper into, which is regarding the resurrection, you said, if it's true. Yeah. And I think that there may be people who are listening to this who haven't yet made up their mind as to whether they should follow Christ. Mm-hmm. And for others who say they are followers and maybe wouldn't know how to work out whether that is true is there any snapshot you can give us as to well how is it true sure yeah um i mean i would encourage anyone who is in that space to um you know just to have a look you can look up online some of the evidences for the resurrection um good place to go would be reasonablefaith.org um if you wanted a sort of longer articulation of that to really reflect more deeply but um I would say just a few points. The first would be that it's an established fact of of history, not just Christian authors um, in the Gospels or, or, you know, people who were personal followers of Jesus, but it's a fact of history that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate um, in Jerusalem. It's a second established fact now by ancient historians that on the third day, Jesus' tomb was found empty. Okay, so those that fact of Christ dying on a cross by you know Roman crucifixion, they they knew how to execute people being buried, and then his tomb being found empty. That requires explanation, and there are a number of explanations that that people have have tried to offer that you know don't involve Jesus rising from the dead. But um, I think when you examine the evidence and, and, you know, there are many books that have been written by people who looked at the evidence sceptically and found themselves persuaded that the best explanation for those facts is that, is that Jesus did rise again from the dead. And, um, you know, that conviction and the experience of those who encountered the risen Christ actually turned the whole world upside down. You know, you started with... 11 sort of very defeated feeling disciples who within, um, you know, three centuries, that conviction that Jesus was God, that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead, Mm. turned the whole Roman Empire upside down. Mm. Yeah, and I guess the fact that people have been willing to die for that in the early church particularly, well, you could say they were deluded, um, but what what does that tell us in terms of the early church? Yeah, that you know that they were 
people willing to die despite um, uh, if people thought that they were, were deluded, I guess they could have said, "Well, we're just going to die because we're we're martyrs." But what is there any sort of evidence for that in terms yeah. of how the church lived? Or yeah, so um, a, a couple of points to that because sometimes people say, "Well, you know, lots of people die because of their sincerely held beliefs," but those sincerely held beliefs could be wrong. And so my question would be, well, how do we know that whether they were right or wrong? If, if we're willing to grant that they were sincerely held beliefs, then that gets rid of one of the potential explanations for the empty tomb, which is that the disciples stole the body. Mm. I think there's a, another, um, another factor in all of this, which is that the resurrection of Jesus was witnessed by individuals and by groups of individuals. So you can imagine perhaps one individual or two individuals being duped or deluded, um, but there's an incident recorded in the New Testament of 500 people at the same time experiencing the resurrected Christ revealing himself to them. And hallucinations you know happen but they they don't happen to 500 people at the same time so mm. that then gets rid of a, a another potential um explanation and i think the other thing i would say is um there's a theologian called nt wright who has written a lot on this and that's to say that um Jew, jewish people had uh, an expectation of a category called resurrection Okay, so mm. in their scriptures and everything, they they had an expectation that one day there would be um, resurrection from the dead. What they did not have a category for was an individual resurrection. Everybody believed that that, that resurrection category was for everyone all at the same time, a, a corporate resurrection. And so when the early disciples encountered the resurrected Christ, and it says that they saw and believed, um, what that seems to be referring to is that um, they had every predisposition to not believe in an individual resurrection. They weren't expecting that to be the outcome. And that, I think, is, is really good good evidence in other words that their minds were changed by the evidence it's not like they expected it and so it was just a sort of self-fulfilling um hope that that then they decided to sincerely believe in no their expectations were completely and utterly smashed by the evidence and on the basis of the evidence they believed yeah that's really helpful thanks for that and um and people can check out, just say, if they want to find out more about that, where can they go? About the resurrection. Um, yeah. I think it's called reasonablefaith.org. Reasonablefaith.org, yeah. Yeah, and there's a, um, a, a sort of scholar there called William Lane Craig, who's a, a real expert on this and lays a lot of it out in detail there. Okay, that's great. So just uh, moving towards a close, um, we think... Uh, in terms of going forward uh, with thinking in culture, do you think that there may be a shift towards people becoming more epistemological? There's a nice word for the in the morning, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, wanting to know those sort of questions of knowing, or do you think people will see it as a blip and just go back to consumeristic kind of ways? What What do you think? Um. I think it's it's at this honestly at the moment really really hard to say. I hope that um, 
there will be ongoing impact from this um, and that one of the impacts will be, as you say, a, a desire to reflect and know and not just to think within one's own very small bubble mm. of, uh, you know, the echo chamber of people who already agree with you about everything. Um, I think that, that the pandemic probably has heightened anxiety that, so mm. one question will be, um, whether that actually accelerates some of the sort of um, high alert thinking. Mm. On the other hand, I feel like some of the the touch points of identity politics, you know, people, things that people have been really, really obsessed by and Mm. persecuted other people about online, um, I do wonder whether some of that is fading a bit as bigger questions of life and death um, come into the fore mm. and I think the last thing I would say is that I I hope and I think we do see a longing for community and for a, a kinder age you, you do see people volunteering you do see people clapping and cheering the NHS so the idea of um, service and mm. um, you know jobs that that actually serve other people being honoured. And so I hope that that some of those things will remain and all of those things are, you know, echoes of the heart of God and are opportunities for for people to come to know him, I think, ultimately. Yeah. Now, that's interesting. When you've spoken about identity politics and you've spoken about uh, the way people think or not, um, I mean, what... Just one last question relating to that. It's just um, got me thinking. Is how did how do we get to the point where, in a sense, we're trying to modify what it means to be human? It's like here I am as an individual in my echo chamber. I will create my own way of existing. How do we get to that point, and how might we get out of it? Because you touched on that there. I think that. Um, a lot of the issue has been um, around the idea of rights. Um, so we've rightly had um, a, 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 a sort of progression in culture of emphasising, you know, human rights, emphasising um, that, that human beings should not be persecuted on the basis of race or colour or religion or gender. Um, but I think what, what happened after that is that some of those movements towards civil rights were then co-opted by um, the sort of identity politics brigade and you've got overlapping rights. So a very good example, I think, is, is around the whole transgender question where um, you have the right of women to be in safe female-only spaces, the right of women to compete in women-only sports, you know, all sorts of things that have rights that have built up over the ages, Um, the the right of women to seek refuge in in hostels where they're going to be able to to be safe together as women. And that being seen as a competing right with the right of other people to say, I have decided to change 
not my sex, but my gender to create this other category and to say, if I say I am a woman, you have to accept that I am a woman. And so those competing um, those competing rights then have become a, a sort of massive area of conflict and both sides feeling um, at risk of being deleted, of being... Um, you know, excluded in some way. And then the idea that my rights and my way of seeing the world um, have to be accepted. And if if they aren't, that means that, you know, I'm a victim of, of, of a hate crime. I'm a victim of, um, of people trying to get me to cease to exist. Mm. It's, it's, it's all then ratcheted up. Um, so I think that's a little bit of sort of how we've got here. Um, yeah. And um, there's quite a bit of unravelling to do in terms of what are the categories that actually objectively exist and what are the categories that are more around um, preference and interpretation. I think there's some work yeah. to do around that uh, and unravelling ideas of rights there. It's interesting as you were saying that, it got me thinking about something that I thought about for about two years of my life, um, which was subjective truth and objective truth. Yeah. And I wonder whether, you know, we've gone too far down the subjective truth uh, road where it becomes all about what you subjectively think is true and therefore we have to respect whatever you think is true and that yeah. trumps everything else. And when we denounce an objective truth being there, then it actually sort of doesn't influence the kind of culture because everyone's going around with their subjective truths. And I guess the flip side of that is if as a church, we've just, you know, said, well, this is objectively true and that's it. And you can't have any subjective interplay with that. Mm. That doesn't allow people to think and apply that. So I think there's something maybe about that going on as well, isn't there? Yeah. I think there's some unraveling there to be done. Um, and you know positive exploration of subjective experience does not um necessarily impact the objective the objectivity yeah. of 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 a fact yeah i think that's right yeah yeah i mean it has to be both doesn't it but it's it's where that is that truth being embodied you know if it's just like well I'm, today i'm today i'm going to be this or tomorrow i'm going to be that um and some of that i think has come out of uh the sort of education that we have in, in, in the UK that's some of it, which has said you can just be whatever you want to be, do whatever you want to do, you know, reach for the stars, go for your dreams. And then suddenly yeah. we realise that, that that's not true. But I guess that, I mean, one of the, um, uh, there are two other things to throw in. One, particularly where this actually impacts people's embodied experience. So where you have, you know, children having operations and trying to mould objective reality to subjective experience and then regretting it. That's that's one thing. And then the other is the role of of propaganda, of how um I mean I think you you have we've seen the power of of words and mantras being repeated in various sort of you know political um, things that have happened over the last little while, but even during this pandemic, the repetition of of 
what feels like kind of propaganda it may be true we need to you know stay mm-hmm. home save lives or whatever but it's it's really really interesting to see the power of of words as well mm-hmm. isn't in shaping um people's fear i mean i read somewhere that the government were not expecting that message to be as effective which is partly why mm. you know they expressed it so so strongly but it's had an unexpected impact on the economy Mm. Yeah. So the yeah. power of words. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, lost you for a moment there. Um, yeah. So, so it's interesting. Yeah, you were just saying about that the the communication of of the media, particularly, um, because it does seem to be that it can be. And there's something odd about this. It only seems to be like there's one key message that comes out in the media these days. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to a multitude of ideas. And I don't yeah. know what, what's behind that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably for another podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's the propaganda <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So any any closing thoughts? Just as uh, Is there any hope? Uh, I mean, you've spoken about the resurrection hope, but as we go forward, any ways that we might think about lovingly yeah. um caringly engaging with our neighbors and friends about this yeah i mean i think one of the things i've been reflecting a lot on is is god as you know love which sounds pretty simple but it's actually pretty mind-blowing that god himself is is love and that He's made us in his image to love him and to be loved by him and to love others. And so you have this amazing ethic of, of love. You see it, you know, throughout John's gospel as Jesus' ministry sort of unfolds, as I have loved you, so now mm. you love one another and love others. So, yeah, my encouragement, I think, would be to, to really press into that God of love to receive his love yourself um, and for the overflow of that to, to um, impact the community around you, your church, um, you know, those, those that you don't know as well. Yeah. And, you know, if we look back in history, you see the early church in the, in the third century faced a, a, a pandemic that killed thousands and thousands and thousands and it was through the love shown by the church to the world in that context that you know many many people in the roman empire became christians and it was self-sacrificial love shown by christians to not just believers but to those who who didn't themselves know the lord and um, this is an amazing example there for us to us to follow as well Yeah. yeah That's great. Well, I guess it's coming up for a time for another cup, a cup of coffee now, which I'm sure. Yeah, think we need it. <laughs> it's a sad sort of aging stage of life. I'm kind of like two, maximum three a day, you know, just to sort of like keep things level. <laughs> so, but but we savour the things. You see, if we don't get greedy, we yeah. savour them, don't we? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks so, so much, much for joining us, and um, maybe one day we'll get you for the the real big breakfast. That'd be fantastic if you could. Oh, um, brilliant. But, well, um, thank you for having me on, and it's great to catch up. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.